The more that you read, the more things you will know. The more that you learn, the more places you'll go. Dr. Seuss. Hi, I'm PJ with ZooFit and welcome to Zoo Notable, where we read books that help change the world and share how we can use that wisdom to change our lives. And whether you're an animal care professional or just a lover of nature and the environment, Zoo Notables helps you grow and level up your life. I'd always assumed there'd be emotional fallout from doing dog rescue. There's just too much history between our species. So what happened? Did one of our forebears happen to glance over at the 180-pound man-eater and think, this guy with the fangs and the drool and the snarl, he's the one I want as my best friend. Welcome back to Zoo Notable. I know it's been a hot minute since I've shared a new note, but I'm back for the next month or so before I go on my reading break. And this week is National Dog Week. And today's book is perfect to celebrate our canine best pals. I recently read some of Stephen Kotler's work, who wrote a great book called The Art of Impossible, among other books. But I was intrigued by a title in his collection with a cute chihuahua on the cover. It was titled A Small Furry Prayer with a subtitle Dog Rescue and the Meaning of Life. A peak performance guru talking about dog rescue? Now, I read the back cover, and this prolific writer actually runs a dog rescue with his wife in New Mexico called Rancho de, de Chihuahua. Wow, I remember thinking, I believe this may be a kindred soul, a true animal-loving writer who wants to help change the world. Now, Small Furry Prayer is not your typical memoir. Cutler is a journalist by nature and has interwoven some absolutely fascinating gems about our natural history with dogs, starting with wolves. He talks about pet ownership and what it truly means to be an animal caregiver. He speaks of altruism, empathy, and even the compassion fatigue that we can suffer from losing our beloved animals often too soon. I was amazed at how much great wisdom I could learn about improving my life and the life of the animals in my care by reading this book, and I'm excited to share some of the big ideas. So today, let's just dive straight in with A Small Furry Prayer by Stephen Kotler. And we'll start with big idea number one, altruism. Quote, I called Joy from the parking lot and told her to adopt Salty. She started cheering. I laughed. But when I hung up the phone, I wondered, why would Joy enthusiastically do this to herself? Every time we got a new dog, Joy disappears down a drain of concern. She can't rest until the dog is on the road to recovery. This period can last months, but in Salty's case, he needed a year's worth of vigilance just to keep him alive. Joy knew all this and was still cheering about a chance to save him. Being inquisitive and a journalist, paired with my curiosity to spend $500 on dog food and Joy's eagerness to work with Salty for a year, had my attention. Joy gave herself altar of herself to her cause. But why? Where does this urge toward altruism come from? I did what many reporters do when faced by ideas they can't quite understand. I researched altruism. Oh yeah, good old altruism. And I'll be honest, I am a little bit of an agnostic about altruism myself. Now, by definition, altruism is doing good deeds and expecting nothing in return. And most people are referring to this quote-unquote return as 
well, we would call them extrinsic rewards, as money, prestige, influence, friends, fame, etc. And even if you don't receive or want to receive any outside prize for doing good work, there's always going to be intrinsic reinforcement. We feel good about doing the right thing. Our brains release the feel-good neurotransmitters, including oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin. Now, Stephen Collar shows from his research that there's even more that we gain from altruistic behavior. Darwin even reasoned that without some benefit, altruism would never have actually evolved. So how does it help us pass on our genes and serve natural selection? According to Darwin, although a, a high standard of morality gives no advantage to each individual, Morality will certainly give an immense, immense advantage to a whole tribe, a tribe always ready to aid one another and to sacrifice themselves for the common good would be victorious over most other tribes, and this would be natural selection. But dog rescue and all animal rescue doesn't promote the well-being of our community, per se. It doesn't even promote the survival of our own species. This isn't what we would call reciprocal altruism either, helping those who in turn help, help us, which in my opinion is an oxymoron. You can't have that and call it altruism. Nothing rescuers do for the animals will help them pass along their genes or even promote their tribe. So how does rescue benefit us? Well, Steve mentions the reputation and influence that we acquire from doing good deeds. Especially in animal rescue, being kind to animals and acting altruistically enhances one's reputation in the community, which is beneficial to our survival, especially in our community. And the mother of cross-species altruism would be wildlife rescue. Quote, one thing I already I knew already. Animal rescuers, especially wildlife rescuers, were a tougher lot than dog rescuers. Whatever the size of the sacrifice made in dog rescue, we at least get the quote-unquote cuddle factor. Specifically, we get to cuddle our dogs. This is a hell of a payoff, but rescuers who work with wildlife never cuddle. They interact with the creatures in their care as little as possible. Their goal is to heal wounds and return the animals to their natural habitat. The last thing they want to do along the way is habituate these animals to the presence of humans. With absolutely no reciprocity, wildlife rescue is the extreme end of cross-species altruism spectrum. It is the purest form of altruism on the planet. And I love this, and this is important to remember. It's not just wildlife, though. Many zookeepers fall into this category of non-cuddling animal caretakers. Now, myself working with elephants, polar bears, lions, reptiles, and even a few birds, I did not cuddle many creatures. I did build trusting relationships for the animal's benefit, and I'll admit I had a lot of fun creating enrichment training new behaviors, and showing the animals off to the public, which is hard for me to say in my opinion that that is altruistic, but I didn't do it for my own glory. I honestly did it for the animals. So I know most of you don't ask for this. You are doing your life's work because this is what you were called to do from your passion and your compassion. And I just want to let you know that I see you and I thank you for your never giving up, keeping on, keeping on, and being shining exemplars for animal care, welfare, and conservation for animals around the world. And big idea number two is reinforcement and forgiveness. 
Quote, Ahab suffered greatly from separation anxiety. While he didn't like my company, he truly hated being left alone. When I was gone, he expressed his displeasure by strewing garbage across my apartment, tearing apart clothes, and chewing up the furniture. At first, I was frustrated. Then I was stumped. Should I take the advice of most dog trainers and ignore the disease of emotional trauma in favor of curing the symptom of bad behavior? Or should I take the advice of animal rescuers and ignore the behavior in favor of treating the underlying trauma? How much was my furniture really worth to me? How much was a cure really worth to me? Should the goal be for Ahab and me to merge our lives, or should I follow the biblical dominion over the beast at Ethos and try to wedge him into mine? When I had a busy day at work, should Ahab get shorter walks because of it? When I had a free afternoon, did I go to the movies, or did Ahab go to the beach? What about his separation anxiety? And what did all this responsibility really mean? And the age-old animal training debate of punishment versus reinforcement, compassion or corrective training. Now, I guess by now, many of you can guess where I probably land in this debate. The Stephen story was with his first rescue dog, Ahab, and it's very heartwarming when you hear it. Yes, in the beginning, Stephen does what an honest-to-goodness, good-hearted person would do in any, with a destructive dog. He would lead Ahab to his mess and tell him no, firmly but calmly. However, when Ahab didn't improve and, in fact, got worse, tearing apart his new couch, Stephen was at wit's end. Quote, I was angry, but I hadn't gotten a dog to be mad at that dog, so I decided to review the facts. And these were the facts. Every time Stephen came home to disaster, Ahab looked guilty. When Stephen shouted at him, he looked sorry. Through inference, Stephen concluded that Ahab knew what he was doing was wrong, but still did it anyway. As Stephen writes, either he was so terrified of abandonment that he couldn't help himself, or else the damage was dog language for, I'm terrified of being left alone, you stupid schmuck. Either way, he was terrified. So Stephen went with his gut and ignored traditional trainers, and even probably most modern trainers. Now, often we say to ignore or redirect incorrect or undesirable behavior, but Stephen went a whole new direction that I honestly love. Whenever he came home to a mess, and in the beginning there was always a huge mess, Stephen started comforting Ahab. He smothered Ahab with attention. The bigger the disaster, the more he loved on that poor dog. And many experts would probably be aghast at such a response. You'll ruin the dog. You'll reinforce the mess your dog is making. But this time, the experts were wrong. Quote, within a week, Ahab stopped destroying the furniture. Within two, he left the garbage alone. At the start of the third, he got up from the corner, walked over to the couch where I was sitting, and put a paw on the cushion. It took him a little while to work up the nerve, but eventually he pulled himself the rest of the way up and belly crawled over. Now this powerful story of a, the power of positive reinforcement training really worked because of the same principles that dictate why punishment doesn't work. Now, let me explain. Modern trainers now say punishment doesn't work because it's not immediate. Now, if Ahab makes the mess hours before Stephen comes home, then yelling or punishing him after such a long delay doesn't have any bearing on decreasing the behavior. 
Well, guess what? That's actually how positive reinforcement works too. Stephen coming home hours after he had made a mess and comforting and loving on the rescue pooch didn't reinforce Ahab making the mess. It reinforced his relationship with Stephen. Stephen showed through consistency and compassion that Ahab would never again be abandoned. Stephen had a day job that required him leaving the house, but with his actions upon returning, he showed Ahab that their story was forever. And folks, I just have to say, this goes for us as well. Are there messes in our lives that we constantly berate ourselves over? Well, is it time to show ourselves a little bit of compassion? And if punishment doesn't work, why don't we try positive reinforcement? Create a trusting and emotionally strong relationship with yourself through healthy, healthy self-care, empathy, and love. Big idea number three is the purpose of play. Despite how common Play fighting is among mammals. It has taken a surprisingly long time for scientists to understand this behavior. For most of the last centuries, researchers had a survival of the fittest view, so assumed play fighting between kids was practice for real fighting among adults. Mark Beckoff and John Byers, both animal behaviorists, researched these assumptions. They re-examined 40 years of research on play fighting in squirrel monkeys. And everywhere they looked, the researchers found almost no correlation between play fighting and real fighting. Uh, so why do animals play? Is it practice for real fighting? The researchers now say no. Play fighting rarely involves biting, which is seen in real fights. But if play fighting is practice, shouldn't animals be biting more to train muscle memory? And also, if play is practice, then why don't those who win play fights win more real fights? Well, it turns out that the purpose of play is actually moral. Animal expert Temple Grandin tells us the purpose of play fighting isn't to teach animals how to win, but to teach them how to win and lose. All animals need to know both the dominant and subordinate role because no animal starts out on top and no animal who lives to old age ends up on top either. Now this creates the idea that it's okay to not win every bout. Playing creates community and establishes some rules and principles for living in a group. Now take Stephen Kotler and his pack of dogs. He spends a lot of time running and hiking with his pups off leash, letting them explore and try new things. He lets them take risks and build confidence by discovering new things and playing with their environment. This means that they learn how to win and how to lose. However, he has a very cute story about one dog who struggled with the losing aspect. Quote, Igor, the bull terrier, discovered how to bank turns and he didn't want to stop. He would attempt to cat leap to the top of steep sides along the riverbed. However, like most bull terriers, Igor cat leaped about as well as he did long division. Bella, on the other hand, could do almost anything she tried. And this drove Igor crazy. Eeyore gave his best, but his best wasn't the Spider-Man antics Abella achieved. He often took side trails to practice alone, going up walls and flying sideways and missing and smashing hard a few times before he got it right. There's some basic science to explain why Igor would want to practice in hiding, but I think it was pure embarrassment. Igor was a klutz. 
His embarrassment faded when Bucket joined the pack and started trying to run up the walls too. Bucket is small and squat and about as aerodynamic as a wheelbarrow. When Igor realized he wasn't the only klutz out there, he stopped trying to hide his efforts. Bella would pull some acrobatic feet, and Igor and Bucket would spend the rest of the hike falling all over the place, trying to learn the trick. I really, I really love this. Play is about learning how to win and how to lose. But playing with someone else helps us not feel alone in our attempts to get things right. So are you playing regularly? And let me ask you this. Do you have a quote unquote bucket to help you overcome your embarrassment of doing new things alone? And now we're on to big idea number four, humanity or dogmanity. Quote, when early hominids arrived on the Eurasian steppe, socially we were much more like primates, but we left more like wolves. Wolves were the steppe's top predator, and we wanted to share that spot. So we adopted wolf-like strategies, and this decision not only changed the course of human history, but may also have been the starting point for human history. What all this history means is that what we call our humanity is actually a collection of traits borrowed from wolves. I really do find the domestication process for dogs fascinating because as Stephen Cutler tells us, and as I've read research from the likes of Temple Grandin, Jane Goodall, and Elizabeth Marshall Thomas, we didn't domesticate wolves. It's more like wolves domesticated us. Before pairing with wolves, we behaved more like other primates, particularly chimpanzees. And Jane Goodall tells us that chimpanzees are individualists. They're always on the lookout for opportunities to get the better of each other. They are not pack animals. If you watch wolves with a pack nuzzling each other, wagging their tails and greeting, licking and protecting pups, you see the, all the characteristics that we love in dogs, including loyalty. Now, Temple Grandin discovered in her research that humans didn't hunt cooperatively, they didn't settle down to regional territories, and they didn't have social, non-family-related communities until we paired up with wolves. Now, this may also solve the mystery of what we call cross-species altruism. The wolves not only taught us to expand our boundaries of community beyond kin, but also taught us to expand beyond our own kind. Now, but with this pairing, which then led to us making partnerships and domesticating other animals, wasn't without a cost. Brain size shrinks in domesticated animals, and yes, even our brain has shrunk by some 20% along the way. So many people believe dogs are now dumber than their wild counterparts. Steven says in a small furry prayer, quote, in the 1980s, this assumption turned to conviction when scientists found wolves could open a latched gate after watching a human do it once, while dogs remained confused after repeated exposures. Yet, Hungarian ethologist Vomos Sinai had doubts. His dogs seemed smart enough. He began to wonder if the dogs in the experiment weren't just being polite. They weren't opening the gate because they were waiting for their owner's permission to open the gate. During a new trial of a similar experiment, when all the owners gave their dogs permission to get the food that required extra effort, there was no hesitation. 
all the dogs had hesitated previously without that permission, but excelled in the task once the owners gave them the okay. Maybe, maybe Vilmos and I thought dogs aren't dumber than wolves, only they're more attuned to human desires. So wolves gave us our humanity and then became more attuned to us as they became part of our tribes and part of human history. They changed, but not for the dumber. They show us such incredible dedication, understanding, patience, and obedience. And it makes me wonder, what have we given back to dogs? Now, I know for me, I do pride myself on being a devoted pet parent, hoping the animals in my care have want or need of nothing. But Stephen and Joy have seen some of the worst cases of dogs being betrayed by the species their ancestors helped shape. And it goes back to that very first big idea, altruism. Is it truly that big of a stretch to desire a good and loving home for the animals that we share our lives and even our humanity with? I would like to say that I spent much of my life showing appreciation and gratitude for the loyalty and love bestowed upon us. And lastly, we have big idea number five, empathy and animal keepers. Quote, around our second autumn in Chimayo, the city where they founded their dog rescue, a close friend whom I'll call Karen got extremely upset when she saw the condition of the Santa Fe animal shelter. Karen's brother, whom I'll call Aaron, had spent 20 years as a junkie on the streets until he finally admitted he needed help and moved in with his sister. When Karen went to pick him up, the incredibly inadequate facilities the state of Oregon uses to house their homeless became apparent. Karen decided adopting a dog would help speed her brother's recovery. Joy drove them to the Santa Fe shelter, one of the better shelters in the United States. This doesn't just mean the dogs get toys to play with and space to roam. It also pipes music into the kennels and makes the shelter as, as comfortable as possible. This infuriated Karen. Why do street dogs get such treatment when my brother spent 20 years homeless and never had a place to sleep so nice? In her mind, the fact that money was being spent to help dogs when there are humans in need of what when there are humans in need was a criminal injustice, a kind of systemic sociological failure that was beyond any acceptable explanation. Now, for most of my life, I sympathized with Joy, who ended up losing this friendship because she, like me, doesn't think human life is above animal life and didn't hide her opinion. I don't remember if I've lost friendships because I worked in zoos, but I did regard conservation issues surrounding endangered animals paramount to any human conflict, even including war, poverty, social injustice, and equality. Poachers were the devil, polluters could rot in hell, and greedy corporate businesses who destroyed rainforests and contributed to climate change were worse than evil. Okay, I might still believe that last one just a little bit. But since leaving the zoo field and encountering folks who are experiencing poverty, social injustice, and inequality, I admit my tune has kind of changed. How can I expect someone to care about conservation of an animal that lives thousands of miles away when their own life, they are struggling to survive and thrive? Now, reading this book with this particular mindset, I do actually side with Karen. How can we take care of all these dogs when we are struggling in society to take care of our 
own species. Now, I will say, I think there can be a partnership in Karen adopting a dog, albeit coming from a high-end shelter, to help her brother recover is one of the best paths I think that we can, I can think where we can aid in two challenges at the same time. But I think empathy is the cornerstone of all work, social work, political work, animal work, conservation work, and yeah, even work on ourselves. Now, towards the end of the book, Stephen shared a brief history of the beloved Catholic saint, St. Francis of Assisi. He claims that Francis was teaching about empathy and shared some of the now famous prayer of St. Francis, for it is in giving that we receive. Stephen goes on to say that this prayer is about how to live altruistically. Quote, right before the giving and receiving line comes his formula. Grant that I may so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. Every one of those is an action involving a switch from in perspective, moving from the egocentric to the allocentric, intentionally trying to put yourself in others' shoes. So we must reward our heroic efforts, however altruistic they may be. We need to maintain a positive relationship with ourselves, keep playing, learning how to win and lose, and find our special crew or pack that allows us to mess up while we are learning, not to take our humanity or our dogmanity for granted, and put ourselves in others' shoes, practice empathy, and keep doing what you can for yourself, your community, and the planet. And we need to do that today, tomorrow, and forever. So that's what I've got for this really fantastic book. If you are interested in reading it yourself, it's available at your local library or from your local independent bookstore. Let me know your thoughts. What big idea resonated with you? And how are you going to start implementing that idea starting today? I'm also going to be sharing a few small bonus ideas from this book on my Patreon page. Yep, I am going to try to revamp that platform as well. If you want to support me, support Zoo Notables or ZooFit in general, please head over to Patreon. There's a link in the description of this episode. And let's going to close this note with a few quotes. I pulled all these from Stephen Kotler's A Small Furry Prayer. Annie Dillard once said, because how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And then Stephen Culler had a reply of, sort, of sorts when he wrote, what exactly did I find profoundly spiritual about cleaning up shit on a daily basis? And Patricia Wright, a primatologist, told Stephen, work with animals and there is going to be heartbreak. And that is very important to remember. Chief Seattle said, what is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, man would die from a great loneliness of the spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts soon happens to man. All things are connected. And finally, Stephen Collar says, we believe that how an animal dies is important. So we've become purveyors of a few great months and a very good death. Thank you, Aaron, and thank you, everyone, for indulging me on my trip down memory lane and a wonderful book about dolphins. You can find Dolphin Journey on Amazon. The link is in the description down below. 
And this month is not just World Oceans Month, it's Pride Month. And at ZooFit, we are all part of the same pride. So next week, I'm exploring a wonderful book called Queer Ducks and Other Animals, talking about queer representation in the animal kingdom. Now, if you want more Zoo Notable goodness or more of ZooFit, you can join our pride over on Patreon, connecting with other ZooFitters, get bonus content, and even previews of my new book, projects, and programs. I keep on keeping on letting stories and the animals take you on adventures to better yourself and better the world. Take care, and I'll catch you all next time.